Welcome to the Topeka First podcast. We are one church with several locations. Our mission is to reach our community with the message of Jesus. If you would like to give to support this podcast and the ministries of our church, please visit topekafirst.com giving. Enjoy the podcast. Well, if we haven't met, my name's Josh. Uh, I'm the Mission Hill campus pastor, um, and, and this is Topeka First. Um, we're a church with several locations, and Mission Hill, where you're at at the moment, is one of them. Um, and we're so excited to kick off this new series um, on the Reformation. If you didn't know, this next month we're celebrating uh, 500 years since the Reformation, which is like a big deal. It's, it's, uh, it's a huge moment in the life of the church. And in the 1500s, uh, the church started doing something uh, that we would maybe not be okay with. Uh, they started uh, doing some things uh, where they wanted to rebuild this cathedral. Basically, they wanted to rebuild this cathedral. And they were like, hey, we uh, need money, but we don't want to use our own money. So we're going to sell these pieces of paper called indulgences. And indulgences were basically a piece of paper saying that, like, because of something you've done, you've now become righteous in the sight of God. And the church would hand them out. Well, the problem happened uh, when they started selling them. Uh, and, and there's this one guy who, um, they, they not only sold them to people for themselves, but they, they also sold them, like, you could sell it to me for, like, my great-grandparents. So that happened. So that was kind of this main complaint. And this monk and professor of theology named Martin Luther decided that he was not okay with this. And there was even, uh, like, a moment where they, were, they started saying things like, um, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And basically, this was this idea that like, um, for someone who died, they go into this waiting place of purgatory, and then the, through prayer and through other things, they would then go, with, whether they would go to hell or they would go to heaven. And so it was this idea, and you as a family could like buy indulgences to make sure that your family made it from purgatory to heaven. And Martin Luther did not like this. He was not a fan. And so what he did, and a lot of, a lot of historians initially, the, the, the rumor that happened was that he took his 95 theses or his 95 different complaints and his reasons why they were wrong and nailed them on a church door. Most historians don't think he did that. They, most of them think that he actually submitted them to his bishop, which was proper procedure, so that he could actually cause a reformation within the church and not a split in the church, which actually makes Luther sound like a way better guy to us, the, the Protestants who now follow because of that teaching. Um, and, and so we see this in history. And throughout the series, this series, I think what we're going to do is we're going to uh, unpack his different ideas. These, I think it's five main ideas that we're going to unpack over this series. But the thing that's interesting is that bishop that he submitted those theses to, uh, he may or may not have liked them, but they made it up to the, the guy in charge. And what happened was they basically were like, no, you're wrong, and you're a heretic. 
And if you don't know what a heretic is, it's someone who teaches, whose teaching is contrary to the Bible and therefore misleading people. And so um, if you ever learn about the Spanish Inquisition in, in school or, or some of these other things where they would kill heretics. Think of that, the church killing people they didn't agree with. That doesn't sound very Jesus-like. In fact, the people that didn't agree with Jesus are the ones that Jesus dies for. And so we get to this moment in history and we're, there's this confusion. There's this, there's this moment where we're like, I don't know what's happening here. And in that moment, the Protestant Reformation happens. Luther splits from the only known church at the time and moves away and starts the Lutheran church, which you've probably seen on street corners around the city. And he starts the, the Lutheran church, and it's this reformation of what Scripture actually says. It says, hey, we're going to call back to what Scripture is actually saying. And so this week, we're starting in saying, and teaching on Scripture alone. And so we're, we're talking about why Scripture is so important and why its authority matters. And so I, I thought the best example for this would be out of Luke 4, we're going to read out of Luke 4 as we see Jesus actually teaching out of the scriptures. And so from our theological standpoint, we believe that Christ, Jesus Christ, is, is both God and man in this moment. And so when he's actually citing scripture, it's almost like he's citing himself, okay? But here's, here's what the verses read. In verse 14, then Jesus returned to Galilee, he had been elsewhere, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. And we see this throughout Scripture on different prophets as they go. Um, but the Holy Spirit empowers people to do great things. And then uh, reports about him had spread quickly through the whole region. So he's got a good report. Like people have uh, been for what he's been saying. And in verse 15, he taught regularly in the synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went, as usual, to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood to read the scriptures. And I want to explain something to you before we move forward. This, in the synagogue, there's kind of like a procedure. There are things that had to happen for it to actually count as like a service, okay? So, first off, to have a service, you needed to have ten men. Ten people had to be present. Then the congregation would recite what's known as the Shema, which uh, it's a confession recorded in uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which is, and that's basically is, um, if you've heard of something like the, like the Apostles' Creed, it'd be something similar to that, where you're reciting uh, a truth, and that's kind of a, a somewhat example of what the Shema is. It's Old Testament, so obviously it's not going to refer to Christ in it, but it's that idea that we're reciting these scriptures as our belief system. Then they share a prayer or sets of prayers, and they can be predetermined, like uh, prayers out of Scripture, or they, they could just be prayers in general. And then they read out of the Torah, which is the law. It's Moses' book. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then it's followed by a reading out of the prophets, and I'm not going to list all the prophets because I will forget one of the prophets, and then you guys can be like the youth group who have been hounding me because I don't own a physical Bible, okay? 
They've been telling me I'm not a real pastor because I don't own a physical Bible. I own thousands of digital copies, okay? That's for you, Gabe, for that taunt. All right. So these texts are, um, they're originally written in Hebrew, and so they're, they're spoken in Hebrew, and then they're translated to Aramaic, the common language of the people. And I think it's important that we take note of how synagogue actually functions, because I think it, it tells us something about how our call as the church is important. And that is, we may have English scriptures here, so I don't have to translate anything, which is great, because somebody already translated it from the original text, which I don't want to do. Because that's a lot of school for uh, a lot of work. But it's important to note that if we're trying to reach people, and this is why it's so important that we have a Spanish church within our, within our church where we do a Spanish language service over at the Boulevard campus on Sunday afternoons, is because the, the actual uh, call is on the church to be able to translate the Bible into the common language of the of the people they're trying to reach and not calling them to come meet us where we are. They have no reason to meet us where we are. We have an important, important job of moving the scriptures out of our comfort zone and making them accessible to the world. So that would look like Spanish. That would look like um, Chinese. It would look like um, Swahili. It would look like um, all these different languages. But it's important that we have languages available for all people. And then following this, this, this reading and translation of the Bible, the, or of the Old Testament, of the law and the prophets, then they follow with an exposition that usually ties the two readings together um, and serves as, um, and then the service ends with a closing benediction. So um, they do something very similar to us. We read the scriptures and then generally most weeks I talk about them and then we close with a prayer and a song. And that sort of thing. So that kind of gives you an idea, a framework of what synagogue is actually like. So in the 17th verse, uh, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, Jesus. He unrolls the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released and that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Not only is Jesus using the authority of Scripture to reveal himself, because that's what he's doing. He's going, hey, look at Isaiah. They're actually talking about me. This is a prophetic moment that's actually pulling forward and saying, hey, not only was there a modern context for this statement, but I am the, the or the, uh, a past context for this statement, but now me, and in the current time, I am the expression of what Isaiah is trying to say here. But I think it's, it's very interesting that the scripture seems to point out something that Luther's complaint is very tied to. Indulgences were generally sold to people that were, well, they were sold to people that were wealthy, but they were also sold to people that weren't wealthy. And the church was um, arguably one of the wealthiest institutions on the planet. And so they were taking money from the poor, giving them false hope in heaven, so that they could build a giant building, an opulent building. But that is in clear contrast to what Isaiah says and what Jesus says here. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
for he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. And so taking advantage of the poor is not okay. And this, this scripture means more than just poor. It means poor economically, but it also means like poor in spirit, like someone who hasn't received the message of salvation yet. And so it's really important that we, we look at those things and we, we tie them not only intellectually and knowledge that we know that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jesus so they could bring good news to the poor, but we need to know that we as extensions of Jesus, need to be bringing good news to the poor. We never want to be selfish people exploiting those less fortunate than ourselves. And then in verse 20, he, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. They looked at him in this moment and go, what is happening? Because they've just talked about the scripture in the way that I did not understand and I did not know. Obviously, we don't have all of Jesus' um, this dialogue here. In, others, in other tellings of this exact story, they don't give him any, we don't get any indication of where he's quoting from. But in Luke, he gives us this indication. And I think Jesus knew that he had to be backed up by scripture for any of these, these people to believe in him. Because initially he comes to the Jewish people who go through this entire thing with the Old Testament scriptures. And if Jesus doesn't fall in line with the Old Testament scriptures, there's no way he can be the Messiah, the Savior. He can't be it. But he falls in line with scriptures. And I think he would know that he would lose credibility. And if, you, if you've ever heard C.S. Lewis's argument on um, the deity of Jesus, one of the main things he says is he's, you, you've got three options for Jesus. He can either be a liar, a lunatic, or he is actually Lord. He cannot be anything but those things. He is, as many of you know, he's a factual person that actually existed in history. So we have to wrestle with this question. We have to wrestle with this question that says, was he a liar? Was he a con man? Why was he doing this? Was he delusional? Did he think he was something that he wasn't? Or could it be that he was actually exactly what he said he was? And that's so important that he falls in line with Scripture. Because that is what kind of defines it for the Jewish people and lets us extend it forward. And in verse 22, then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. How bold is that? Like this scripture that was written hundreds of years before this moment has been fulfilled this day by me. Because he in that moment brought good news to the poor. This is also so important because he says, Scripture has fulfilled, fulfilled, I fulfilled Scripture today. So that means that his authority matters, it matters that he falls in line with Scripture to verify who he is. That the Scriptures are the authority for validation of what he's actually talking about. And he's saying that the authority of the scriptures is higher than the church. 
Jesus doesn't change the scriptures, he fulfills them. And this is really important because initially the church thought because we accepted the scriptures as canon, we are then, canon being like part of the Bible, we are actually superior to the scriptures. Therefore, when God speaks to me directly, that I can then change what scripture says or modify, have a new revelation of it. But the scary thing is, if we do that, it's to one person in one time making a sweeping declaration for the entirety of the church, for the entirety of the Christian story. And it's not that new revelation hasn't come because that's what we see in the New Testament. We see that that was new revelation after the Old Testament. But I want to talk about the authorities of Scripture just a little bit more. I think one of the best arguments for the authority of Scripture over the church is that Jesus himself is constantly teaching out of it. How many times in the Bible, not only Jesus, but like the, the apostles as well, they're like, as it is written, for it is written. How many times, if you've read your Bible recently, how many times have you heard that? You hear it all the time. Because they're constantly saying, I am not changing something. I am pointing back to what was already true that you knew was true. You just don't see what the implication of, is that, of that is going forward. They're so important to look back. And that, for me, is one of the biggest things is that the idea of the transition from Classic Judaism, when we think of Judaism where they're still waiting for the Messiah to come to Christianity, is that Christianity does not modify the backstory. They don't change the history. They simply build upon it. They're constantly referencing the law. They're constantly referencing the prophets to show that they're in line with Scripture. And I looked this up um, and it's very interesting. A lot of people um, don't know this, or maybe you do know this if you've been through um, some, some sort of historical university setting or through high school if your teacher taught this. But did you know that there's tons of manuscripts of the Bible? Do you know that? The historical documents. You know, to give you a frame of reference, I just kind of grabbed some ballpark numbers on a couple of different things. We've got preserved uh, there's more preserved manuscripts than any other ancient text, but um, they have over 5,800 completed fragments, completed or fragments of the Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and 9,300 manuscripts in various other ancient languages. This far supersedes any other ancient work. By a lot. It's huge. And so there's so many verifications of the scripture is what it is. So we know what the scripture is, but do we trust it? Is it trustworthy? And that's the decision we have to make for ourselves. It's not whether the Bible is actually set up properly. It's that do we trust it? The other thing that was going on during that 1500, uh, that 1500 period was that the, the church controlled the message. The mass, the, the, the service, was actually 
done in Latin. And they didn't have Bibles in the common language of the people. And that's why we, we point out John Wycliffe, because John Wycliffe is so important to the message uh, of Christianity actually moving forward, because he actually translates the Bible into English in England in the 1300s. He does this so that the common people can verify that the church isn't misleading them. It's so important that you all read scripture to prove that I'm not misleading you. It's so important. Biblical literacy in the United States is so low. But it's so ironic because we also intellectualize our faith and forget to put it into practice. It's, it's amazing that in the Western world, we actually look at faith very differently than the Eastern. We look at so much differently. And in the Western world, we're like, I agree, that's nice. And then we don't live it. Like, we're like, I intellectually know this piece of trivia about history called the Bible. But if, if, if it's only trivia, if it's only this moment where we can go, I know that Jesus brings good news to the poor. And we never bring good news to the poor? We're not living out Christianity. We're simply really good Jeopardy players. That's it. That is it. But I think it's important. We need to be scholars of the word. We need to be stewards of the word. And we need to be practitioners of the word. It's not good enough to read your Bible in this translated copy that we have in front of us and not dig any deeper. There are people who have devoted their lives to the study of one book. I have a library of books that are a man or a woman devoting their life to one book and looking at what does the original text actually say. Where have we misconstrued it? Where have we missed the mark? Where in our, in our Western American culture have we not understood what Jesus was actually saying? What Paul was actually saying? What Peter was actually saying? So important that we actually study that. I think we can look at um, we can look at what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy is is a person that he's mentoring and he's trying to train up to be uh, a leader of a church. And in Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, it says this: All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, to correct us when we are wrong and teach us what to do right or what teach us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So God has a purpose for scripture. It's not only just a historical document. There's a purpose for it. It's, in, it's both a historical document, a collection of works of art, if you've read through the Psalms, if you've read through some of the poetry books of the Bible. Did you know there's multiple genres in the Bible? Anybody know that? That, that there's history, there's, there's these grand epic narratives, there's, there's poetry, there's prophecy, 
There's all these different things that actually reveal different aspects of God. And if we miss out on any part of it, we're missing out on part of God. If we miss out on the poetry of the Psalms, of using metaphor to actually show different aspects of God's character, then we miss out on part of God. But if we miss out on on the prophecy portion, we miss out on the intention of God. If we miss out on on the historical books, we're actually speaking in ways we don't understand because we don't know where it's been. It teaches us what is right and it shows us where we are wrong. That's why it's so important to read the scriptures. If we don't, we lose our ability to judge biblically right from wrong and are now being able to be swayed in any way we want. Anyone with a good thought can sway us because we aren't actually rooting our morality and our ethic in the scriptures. Justice has to be found in the scriptures if we're going to be these people that adhere to the teachings of Jesus. If you don't want to hear the teachings of Jesus, then it doesn't matter. But if you want to adhere to the teachings of Jesus, we have to have the core of our biblical ethic, our morality in the scriptures. Uh, yesterday I went to Joe's in Kansas City. Anybody ever, uh, Joe's Kansas City Barbecue, anybody ever been there? Aaron? Josh? Good. Terry? Mike? Good. Mike? Uh, actually, I said Mike and you're in line with each other, so I kind of covered it. But if you've never been to Joe's, it's a wonderful vegan restaurant. Wait, why are you laughing? Joe's, the vegan restaurant in Kansas City. Can any of you prove me wrong they didn't raise your hand? Any of you? Without using your cell phone. Can anyone actually verify that I am wrong in saying that Joe's is a delicious vegan restaurant in Kansas City? Well, it's vegan barbecue. Portobello mushrooms. That's actually on the menu, so I, did, I didn't lie there. Um, but Hannah had never been, and I had spent this, all this time talking about Joe's and how it's like the best barbecue in Kansas City. And yes, you can fight me on it later. But like there's so many people that think Joe's is the best. That Joe's, some people say it's the best in the world. And I happen to agree. But that's not important. But Hannah had never experienced it. So for all she knew, it could have been this wonderful vegan restaurant in Kansas City. But until she tasted the pulled pork, until she understood what those flavors were and actually enjoyed them, she had no way of telling me I was wrong in saying that there was a vegan restaurant. And it's absolutely not a vegan restaurant. It is a barbecue place in Kansas City, and it's delicious. And if you haven't had a Z-Man, you need to go there, and you need to get a Z-Man. And then split your fries with somebody else, because there's more than enough for two people. Um, That's just proven over time and time again. But it's the same thing with the Scriptures. If we don't read the Scriptures, if we don't understand the Scriptures, they might be saying something completely different than the person that's talking to us about the Scriptures are actually saying. There's so many times where we can we could read the scriptures and, and go, well, I'm reading that, that statement of Jesus incredibly literally and without any context and any reference, 
Like, if you remember back towards the beginning of the year, we were talking about uh, don't let the dog eat the children's bread. Jesus isn't claiming that Samaritans are no good. He was actually mimicking and mocking the, the, the current thought about Samaritans and saying, you people think that other people are allowed to be put down because of where they're from or who they are, and that's not okay. But if, if you never read that story and you didn't see what Jesus was actually referencing, you'd miss out on it. So it's important to actually taste the barbecue of Scripture. Just, just so you know. Um, we need to be people that know what the Scriptures actually say. In, in Psalm 119.11, uh, David says this, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, that I might not miss the mark. I know what the rules say so that I don't play outside the rules. Any of you guys ever like played a board game and like not read the rules? And then gone to somebody else's house, tried to play that game, and then they correct you? I said something very nice about my in-laws a couple weeks ago. I'm going to say something not nice about my in-laws this week. They don't know how to play Clue. They don't. They don't have any idea how to play Clue. None at all. Like in Clue, fun fact, if you've never read the rules, when an accusation is made against your character, your character then has to be moved to the room in which the accusation was made. It's part of the rules in the rule book. How the game is played. I go over there and they're like, no, we just stay where we are and then you can do this and you can do this. And I'm like, that is not the game. That is not the game, people. And so I don't win that game very often at their house. <laughs> uh, but we need to know what the guidebook actually says. We need to know how to do it. And the only way to know how to do it is to actually learn the scriptures and read the scriptures and, and become aware of what that truth actually is. And I want to challenge you, if you don't read the scriptures in any way currently, take five minutes each day. Five minutes, that's it. All I'm asking are five minutes. You can even set a clock. You can have an alarm, and when those five minutes are up, you just like close that Bible. Or, in my case, with digital copies, you just lock your cell phone or iPad or laptop. One of those things. You can do that. It's fine. But read the scriptures for five minutes a day. You'd be amazed at how your life actually changes. Abby tweeted the other week, um, I, if you aren't on Twitter and you don't follow Abby, uh, you're missing out on life because, man, she's got good tweets. But uh, she tweeted the other day, I'm amazed at how well I feel after waking up that 15 minutes early to read my Bible, how it changes the outlook of my day because I've heard what God actually has to say for that day. And I'll also quote her in saying this, that 15 minutes, no matter what your body tells you, when you actually wake up, is not going to change things for your day. Like, that 15 minutes of extra sleep is not going to change things. So make a habit of it. Make a habit of it. If you're someone who reads the Bible already, be consistent. Don't miss a day. Don't miss a day. I find myself, I'm really, really good on work days. I'm super good on work days. Like, I make sure to do my Bible reading. But on weekends when there's less structure, I'm so much less consistent. I'm so much less consistent. Make a structure, make a habit in your life of reading the scriptures because it actually shows you what's going on. 
And so that's the biggest thing, that the authority is of the Scriptures over the church. And we submit to the authority of the Scriptures because Jesus himself submitted to the authority of the Scriptures. And we need to know what those Scriptures actually say. So as the band comes, remember to read. I know, I, I hated reading growing up. I hated it. I, I don't know why, because reading's good. A lot, I mean, a lot of people, my wife is an avid reader. She reads all the time. Um, but I am not a huge reader. But how my life has felt better since I've actually started reading the Scriptures. It's changed who I am. Reading the Scriptures is so important to our lives. So as the band is going to sing this next song, will you stand with us as we pray? God, I just pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through the Scriptures. That it's not a lack of you trying to show us who you are, but it's a lack of effort in trying to find you. The Scriptures are such a source of of truth and and beauty. God, thank you for the Psalms on a hard day. All those moments when we know that David had a rough day and he sang to you about that rough day. And he sang about your faithfulness. God, thank you for the Gospels the story of your time here on earth, Jesus' time here on earth. This story of these moments where you walked into history and you said, hey, you guys are missing the point. I've come to proclaim good news to the poor and to the nations. And not to just the Jewish people, but to all people. God, thank you for the writings of Peter and Paul and John and every other writer of the epistles that they would actually tell us what all this means. They would, they would educate us when, when we didn't know ourselves. God, thank you for the history in the Old Testament that we know what's wandering away from you actually does, what it looks like and the blessing of staying close to you. Of the heroes of the time where they would, they would follow wholeheartedly after you and they would not be left in vain, but you would meet them. God, thank you for revelation, for what is to come. For that verse that you said heaven will be filled with every tribe tongue and nation in your grand grand royal scream of diversity God thank you so much that your scripture is as beautiful anything else as beautiful as a sunrise I saw it this morning the sun reflecting the moon 
God, thank you. God, give us a passion for your scriptures, for the truth that you brought to us. In your name, 